welcome to MCS Pentecasts, podcasts about theology and life in the Spirit, featuring both scholars and practitioners. MCS Pentecasts are produced by Master's College and Seminary in Ontario, Canada. I'm Peter Newman, Academic Dean of Master's College. This Pentecast is part one of two of Dr. David Reed, Professor Emeritus of Wycliffe College, Toronto, Canada. Dr. Reed is speaking to a Pentecostal theology class at Master's Pentecostal Seminary and Tyndale Seminary on the topic, The Prosperity Gospel, recorded March 13, 2020. Folks, really pleased today to have Dr. David Reed with me, um, with us. I first met David when I was doing uh, Master's studies at Wycliffe College, and he had a course, Pentecostal Charismatic Theology. And I remember sitting in a room with about 13 to 15 people from all sorts of different traditions down at uh, Wycliffe, but they'd be from Roman Catholic and Pentecostal and everybody else, and David was guiding us through that. And I've mentioned um, David's name before because we've read some of his material for this course on Oneness Pentecostalism. And uh, so very, very pleased that he would be with us today. Uh, he's not going to be talking about Oneness Pentecostalism, though. I wanted uh, to, this is the first time we've done this particular topic on prosperity gospel in this course. But I felt uh, as I got to reading, it was after, well, actually, after David spoke at the Society of Pentecostal Studies last year and did a paper on this, uh, that I thought, this is probably something I need to give more focus to. Uh, I read Kate Bowler's book, Blessed, and some other material, and just realized this this is much, much bigger than uh, I thought, and I should have known that, and I didn't. And uh, <laughs> so um, I thought, well, if we can get David to come in and talk to us, and you don't live all that far away, just in Markham, um, but would you welcome with me uh, David Reed? David's provided a handout that is uh, available on the site, either in the handout section or I also did an announcement and attached it there. So thank you, David, for being with us. Well, thank you, Peter, and I'm really glad to be with you. Can you hear me all right? Mm-hmm. Glad to be with you, and uh, and I enjoyed Peter in, uh, in uh, the in course. And oh, you also directed my PhD studies. Right. Well. <laughs> <I didn't mention laughs> yes. yes. Hand stitch you right through it. Yes. <laughs> uh, it was very good, very good. Uh, but I've enjoyed my uh, my friendship with Peter both then and, and afterwards. And uh, I'm glad to be with you. Uh, and uh, while this has tended to be a bit of a side issue in terms of my scholarship, I have to say that I uh, I, for quite a bit of time, because I keep bumping, just like uh, uh, Peter talked about, bumping into the prosperity church, and I realized how large it is, and um, and it warranted a little bit of, well, it also helped to satisfy some of my curiosity, because as a, I, I'm an Anglican minister <laughs> for 50 years now this year, but uh, I'm not that old. They ordained me as a baby. <laughs> uh, but, uh, uh, I was reared in oneness Pentecostalism back in the East, and I connected with my doctoral work on oneness Pentecostalism uh, with a lot of churches, African-American churches, and a little bit of Latino, and uh, as well as uh, uh, white churches. So I've done uh, quite a bit, of, and also uh, uh, globally as well. 
Uh, so, but this uh, has created a curiosity in, a, in the richest sense of the term because it is a large movement. I might say it later, I might not get to say it, but upwards of 80% of Protestant churches in Africa would be some version of prosperity gospel because they don't understand some of the problems that they don't have some of the problems that the West has. Okay, I, I want to have some conversation back and forth, so keep your questions in mind. I'm going to introduce this and then we'll have, there's going to be basically three sections and uh, maybe after each one of them we can have a little bit of conversation, all right? Because we'll need that, I'll need a break. I don't want you to fall asleep on me. And, okay, at the very beginning, uh, here's basically what's going on. There is a promise of this world prosperity on the basis of God's covenant provision and Christ's atonement, at which elicits both inspiration and skepticism. And it's very polarized these days. The recent literature, however, has tended to be critical. I don't mean the popular literature. It comes in mountains from the prosperity uh, branch. But uh, for observers reflecting on it, uh, it's, it's critical and it's often limited to the most extreme versions. People will remember the name Kenneth Copeland, right? Maybe Creflo Dollar. He's not as extreme as Copeland. But these are the names that, uh, that they, they use to tell you what it's all about. And, uh, excuse me, but the, pro, uh, the, 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 the prosperity gospel movement is both diverse and it's global and sometimes challenges those assumptions that I just referred to. So we are going to review uh, and assess the movement from three disciplines, basically give a little bit of history in the Pentecostal movement, I'll see why, and then the culture, you don't really understand, I'm going to say this, you don't understand the movement unless we understand the cultural dynamics that are going on that makes it either die or fly. And then uh, theology, and I'm going to look at the theology in part through a Canadian case, which I did at the, at the paper last year, at Francis Kingdom Covenant Church. Does anybody know that name? You don't know that name. Well, I told the media when they asked me one time, what's the most interesting thing going on in Toronto? And I said, well, how'd you like to go to a church uh, that is, uh, that is uh, pastored, founded and pastored by a Jamaican black woman, and it is one of the largest churches in Toronto that nobody knows about. And so they all had a trip out there to, to visit her. Kingdom Covenant Church out west of 427. Um, but I'll, I'll do more than that, but I will kind of highlight her as the case. Okay, uh, I'm not preaching, but I think I do. <laughs> Is there any particular uh, formal break between now and 12? No, you, you've got us till 12. <laughs> okay. Uh, so, just as an introduction, uh, the charismatic movement uh, called Prosperity Gospel is one of the most controversial, I just mentioned that. It's an off offshoot of the mid-last century of the Salvation Healing Movement with Oral Roberts and, uh, and others. And during the past quarter century, it has grown rapidly in numbers and in diversity and in its global reach, attracting both allegiance and antagonism, as you can imagine. 
And a lot of the criticism, by the way, comes from the closest of cousins, the Pentecostals. <coughs> and two aspects are calling for some attention here. One is uh, the, the, the diversity and the global reach. Uh, you can have, as I said, uh, Kenneth Copeland and others in what we call hard prosperity, and then there's the, uh, the softer prosperity. And then the question becomes, does the cultural context from a wealthy West to a poor global South inform or change the meaning of prosperity? Just some, something for you to think about. I won't necessarily answer all of that. Say so to the history. Is it a metaphysical heresy or is it a Pentecostal innovation? I'm going to argue for the latter. In mid-century, uh, the Pentecostal movement, especially through the Pentecostal Sins of Canada and the Pentecostal Sins of God, uh, were leaning more and more towards the evangelicals. Uh, the, the Sons of God were a, a founding, was a founding member of the uh, uh, NA, United Association of Evangelicals. And at the same time, uh, the uh, prosperity gospel movement was getting its legs coalescing around the healing ministries of people like Oral Roberts, A.E. Allen, Jack Coe, and many others during that particular period. Kenneth Hagen came along, and he was a young man and very much inspired by Oral Roberts uh, initially, but then he got his own legs. One time Pentecostal pastor became the earliest spokesman uh, that was highly profiled at least, <clears throat> and into what was called the faith, a word of faith movement teaching. Uh, he was a prolific writer, radio teacher, and founder of Rainbow Bible College uh, uh, Training Center in Oklahoma. The critics of the Word of Faith movement called it an alien heresy borrowed from the 19th century metaphysical movement that also produced Christian science and new thought and that sort of thing. Uh, uh, there's some books there, Hutton and McMahon's uh, the Seduction of Christianity, McConnell, A Different Gospel, Robert Bowman's The Word of Faith Controversy, uh, Understanding the Health and Wealth. Bowman is a, comes in a little later, and he's more sympathetic and takes a, a more uh, careful, I would say, and uh, a more open look at the movement. I focused a bit on an African-American uh, writer, uh, who did his PhD, I think, at Regent University initially. He's African-American, Lewis Brogdon, and the title of his book is The New Pentecostal Message, Question Mark, an Introduction to the Prosperity Movement. Uh, and he criticizes some of the critics for their lack of historical analysis. And I found him uh, to be, he's not as well known as, as Kate Bowler, for instance. She did a thorough and very, very good job. Uh, but he comes from an African-American angle on it was for many years in the uh, in, in a church that would be considered prosperity. And as I have to tell you, it looks a little bit different there to begin with, and it's not as crazy and as wild as you think it is. So an insider sometimes has instincts, I'll get back to that. Uh, the key bridge person between that 19th century and the prosperity movement is Essex W. Kenyon. I had originally done some work uh, on, in terms of my own oneness Pentecostal work. Uh, Hagen 
woke up one morning and said he'd had a revelation and God gave him these words and he wrote a whole lot. And it turns out to be word for word from Nessie Kenyon. And he said, his response was amazing. He said, when a God anoints you, how can you say the same thing to one person as he said to somebody else? I think that really flew very hard. <laughs> but I, I will only say and move on to say that Kenyon, uh, Kenyon was an evangelical. He went to Emerson College, which was very deeply influenced by the Romantic movement and by New Thought and all of that. And so he picked up a lot of ways of thinking from there, but uh, he, he didn't buy into it. My school that I went to for my undergraduate Christian school, Barrington College, now merged with Gordon College, was founded by Essie Kenyon in 1900. And I, so I knew instinctively that the people that he hung around with were evangelicals, and nobody there was criticizing or nailing him as a heretic. And, uh, and Kate Boris says exactly this when she looks at, at him because he uses a lot of language and he's very optimistic and, and all of that. She said he chided the content of the metaphysical uh, writers, not their method. So in other words, he adopted some of their method, but, but the content was still gospel. The, 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 the issue there that gets into the prosperity movement is his own radical uh, theology of the atonement. Uh, it's substitutionary. And, it, and it's legal. And in other words, uh, we know that uh, from evangelical teaching as well, uh, that Jesus Christ became our substitute and uh, gets rid of the debt that we owe God Correct. on Psalm. It goes back, back to that a lot. And, uh, excuse me. And, but what he adds, he said, everything that is provided in the atonement forgiveness of sins, healing, that's very Pentecostal, right? Healing in the atonement. But he adds prosperity in the atonement, in other words, well-being. And God wants all of those good things for us. That's number one. Number two, uh, how do you access the atonement? It's transactional. It's in, when Jesus died on the cross, he gave you his blood to atone for your sins, and he also gave you and me his name. And so the name of Jesus is, is imprinted in the atonement. And when you and I use the name of Jesus, the authority of the name of Jesus, based on what Jesus accomplished in the atonement, you uh, have a right to do that, and you can expect God to provide for you everything that he offered in the atonement. you understand that? And so that is exactly where... Uh, where his theology gets picked up in the prosperity movement. Uh, and I would add here, uh, Bowler points out that it, between Kenyon and the prosperity gospel, uh, all the four elements that are in Kenyon's teaching are in the prosperity gospel movement. Faith, health, that would be healing, uh, so on, uh, wealth, and victory power of the gospel is available to it. So that's where the atonement and spiritual warfare comes in in Kenyon. Uh, Brogdon says there are eight different types, and that's where you get into the diversity. 
I'm going to only just mention three, just so you, you have a, a picture. Uh, big power, the positive confession movement, that would be Hagen, and uh, his disciple, Copeland, who went far beyond him in many ways, in some ways. And then the second one is supernatural prosperity. John Avanzini, the wealth of the world based on uh, Adam's book, uh, The Wealth of the Nations, uh, uh, the Scottish uh, economist, uh, who says that God placed all this, these riches, trillions and trillions of dollars worth of jewels, you know, uh, everything in the world, you know, the iron and the nickel and just everything. And he said, why would God put Adam and Eve in the garden and say, you can't have it? God put it there for you and me to enjoy it. And so he believes that we have a right, especially as Christians, and I'll get more into that in a bit, uh, uh, we have a right because God originally planned that for us. The third one is uh, prosperity's divine favor, and that's probably the, the softest one. And he mentions Joel Osteen, but also T.D. Jakes. T.D. Jakes, about a decade ago, turns out, uh, moved away from identifying with the prosperity movement. Uh, he called himself, I think, something like a transactional, transformational uh, uh, activist or something. Uh, Francis does the same thing. And so they want to move away from the extremes. <clears throat> but all of them have a robust theology of abundance. <clears throat> okay, there's a, the Pentecostal background to this. Could you say something about the metaphysics, like what, it, what uh, in, in a sentence or two, what is the, the, the uh, tie or not tie to metaphysical influences from the 1800s? Like that some of the writers have said, prosperity movement is tied to this metaphysical teaching. What would that be? What are some of the things? Oh, the uh, optimism uh, uh, is, is, is sort of like the uh, Christian science. Okay. She would uh, talk about it's, it's mind cure. Uh, very, very optimistic that if you think it, it will happen. You know, the, uh, the universe is sort of made up that that way. So it's it's, that's outside, right. it's outside of Christianity. This is how the universe works. But High, highly optimistic. That's that is yes. It is how it op operates, and that uh, there's an emphasis on the divine spirit in the universe, if you like. So that the uh, that if you think and enter into that, you can actually change the physical. It's like uh, that the person who fell down the stairs and got up said, "My, that was a nasty thought." And, uh, <laughs> and well, the Calvinist fell down and said, "Boy, am I glad that's over." <laughs> uh, that's, that would be it. And, and it's interesting. Uh, at the same time, you have uh, Charles Collis, A.B. Simpson, founder of you-know-who, the Missionary Alliance, and uh, uh, A.J. Gordon, founder of Gordon College uh, and pastor of New Church of Boston, get the name of it now. Uh, they all wrote and taught on healing. And uh, I think it's Heather Curtis wrote a book on this, and she said that they, they were side by side. In, in, the New, in New England and Boston area. So they were 
really rubbing shoulders with each other. So the, the Mary Baker had in the, the new thought that was thinking about all of this, they're thinking it, it again, metaphysically. Um, the universe is filled, filled with energy, and you need to tap into that energy. That's that's a part so of it. Do you think the prosperity movement is directly tied? You're, you're, you're saying not not quite, or for that type no. of Can you just clarify that before we go on to the culture? Well, uh, I make the distinction. Is the, Does he get picked up by the camera? Yeah, oh, we're, still, we're still there. Okay, we're so, still there. If yeah. you walk too far past, if you walk to where Peter is, we lose you. Okay. <laughs> no, we're still there. Yeah. The, the, the mind cure, the, sorry, the, uh, uh, the, the new thought in Christian science, it was mind cure. You could heal yourself through, uh, through meditation and through, through accessing the energy in the universe. And this goes back another century beyond that. Uh, and they were experimenting in Germany with all the, all the uh, uh, energy in, in the world. And but it was the evangelicals who talked about faith cure. So you trust in, in God, you trust in the name of Jesus, and that is how you will be healed. But they were still uh, operating off, off each other in that particular way. And so what happens, you see, people who don't do their homework, uh, like these popular writers, saw the connection with Kenyon and connected him with the metaphysical movement, and didn't read it carefully, and just made that connection in a physical opinion and the prosperity gospel heresy. Whereas uh, Kate Moore and others uh, would say, no, it really was, uh, it really was the, uh, uh, the, the Kenyon was drawing on his faith cure tradition amongst the evangelicals, but he was using a lot of the language of the metaphysical uh, movement. Okay, any other questions? Okay. Uh, okay, going to the culture. Is it the promise of the father or is it neoliberal economics? Sabine Dreyer and Robert Smith, P.B. Smith rather, and some others edited this volume. I got this from Michael Wilkinson. Did you know Michael Wilkinson, sociologist out west? And, uh, and he was the one that gave me a draft copy of this book before it was actually published. It allowed me to read into her, her, her introduction as well as Michael's uh, uh, essay, and there was another one. Uh, I haven't read the, the whole thing, unfortunately. Religious activism in the global economy, promoting, reforming, or resisting neoliberal globalism. If you need to understand that culturally, Back in the 70s, late 60s and 70s, when, when uh, the prosperity gospel was catching on, it was drawing on a whole shift in the culture uh, towards neoliberal capitalism. It was already there, but it really took off during that time. I remember when that was happening. Uh, but anyway, Dreher reports uh, today, religious doctrines have emerged as real alternatives to communism, socialism, liberalism. Uh, but one thing that was missing here, while there has been significant attention given to the role of religion in the political, I'll come up with, with this in a minute, in the political sphere, similar attention to the field of economics has been lacking on that. 
and so she cites somebody else here that defines neoliberalism. Here's the definition, and you're going to see why uh, Paula White is supporting Trump and one of his spiritual advisors in hanging. She's prosperity. You know that name from Florida? Yeah. Yes, of course. And uh, uh, there's part of the connection. Uh, a project. It is a project of global, global market making with the goal to abolish all state regulations that are seen as impediments to economic growth. Does this sound familiar? Are the freedom of maneuver for business, whether nationally or globally. Big corporations do not like government messing with them. While the surveillance and the regulatory capacity of the state are strengthened, to better implement these reforms. In other words, they want the government to create laws that give them permission to do what they want and have freedom to do what they want. Are you getting it? Yes. This is important because this is exactly what is going on in the United States right now with the conservative evangelicals, a stream of them, that are supporting President Trump. And, it's, uh, and the business community in that world do not want the government to interfere with their work on that part. So you have to at least understand that. And so she finally concludes that the prosperity gospel movement is a promoter of economic neoliberalism. I know some of this because I both got stung and had my fingers cracked for things I've seen. You can delete this if you want. Boris <laughs> uh, says the convergence of neoliberal economics and the prosperity movement uh, in the 1920s, World War I era uh, was manifest because right after the First World War, and this is key, you see, for Pentecost, she's going back to an earlier version of it, uh, is experiencing new wealth, which rewarded big business and avid consumerism and lionized the business leader. This is right after the First World War. So after a war, there's, the economy takes off again, right? And so that's what was happening in America. And then she goes on to say that after the Second World War, America was doubly blessed uh, with a robust economy producing the largest middle class in history, good health and prosperity, and the churches introduced modern business models and practices. The prosperity gospel megachurches became agents of socialization and values and beliefs of prosperity. Sheikh Bowler calls this corporate metaphysics. As the church model of big business, lay people turned to a gospel that explained how wealth, capitalism, and devotion coincided. And Brogdon actually points something that's, that has niggled away at me for a long because I had never thought about it. He says, we have theologies in our church of stewardship, basically, how to get your money. Uh, for the church, so on. That uh, we don't have a theology of prosperity. And so we need to begin to work that through. The Anglican Diocese of Toronto has a document I just got and haven't had a chance to read. It's a theology of money. And I think it's going to address this in a larger scene than simply stewardship. That's worth thinking about. Go home and start outlining what the theology of prosperity would look like. Now, Peter Beyer who's in this uh, document, says all institutions, economics, politics, religion, education, and law are interdependent. Historically, 
the nation states were developed in Europe following the Peace of Westphalia. I won't get into that, which also produced state churches. That's when each state would get its own state church, you know, Lutherans and German Church of England and England and so on. The result, those church structures modeled themselves on a political system. And everything she said that, that you know, said that happens in the church structurally actually mirrors the structure of the state. Did you notice? I don't know about Pentecostals, but man, a lot of the states in the Episcopal Church, I passed there for 18 years. And uh, how, who gets to vote in, 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 a, in, a, in a church yeah. annual meeting? Members. Pardon? The members, and how do you get to be a member? You have to add it up, right? You have full support of that church, you know. And if you're not, if you're not giving, you're just kind of, you're, then you're the casual visitor, basically. Uh, uh, some Pentecostals call it freeloaders. And, uh, uh, so uh, Pentecostals, especially at other evangelicals, use the, the you know the tithes and offerings. And uh, we, we're still trying to spell tithes in the Anglican Church. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, when you're one to two percent, you know, tap the big givers and, and all of that. So we, we talk about, don't like all this wealth. It's, we, we do that. We look at some churches and you know, it's wealth around or something. And we don't like it. And I said, yeah, but the bishop, you've got a whole committee that you meet with every year. These are, these are the big movers in the Diocese of Toronto. You know, understand that. And so when he has a project that we really need to be doing this, he passes the offering plate better than that to, uh, to these people. So that they, that's where they get the big money. So we cannot, we need to be careful about how we understand wealth and money. And the problem I'll say probably in a minute is has to do with the display of money. They don't display it. Prosperity gospel displays it. You better watch the time here. Modern on the political system today, the prosperity gospel is an example of a religious movement that is shifting to the economic system. This is big system. This this covers the country, right? Uh, and even the West. Reinforcing it by providing followers with language, structure, and culture that reflect that system. Consumers is what we call them in the prosperity movement, not, and that's said in a neutral way, not consumerism is bad. They are consumers, not loyal citizens. You see, in the old church, uh, a loyal citizen, in fact, in the 1950s, good loyal citizen that wanted to be a mayor had to go to church. You understand that. We uh, quote, replete with presidents, chief executives, managers, consumers, and products that are produced, distributed, and consumed. All the tapes of the sermons and the teachings and everything and all the, the, the music teams uh, 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 tapes that they send out, the, the programs that they have on TV and other places, you can you become a consumer of that, right? And the, and the pastor who writes books and has the text of the teaching. The, the, here, I want to add one thing that is not in that volume. 
and I learned it in another place, but I want to point it out in what is the intention of the consumer? A consumer generally implies someone who pursues and expends wealth primarily for the uh, for self-interest. Like I want that, I love those earrings, and uh, all of those things. Even if it is a worthy thing that you spend it on, as getting a new bathroom. A team of researchers reporting in this volume, going to church, uh, did some research on people who went to church, often Pentecostal churches, by the way, and they proposed a more nuanced interpretation of the motives among Christian prosperity practitioners. They say, what is needed is a more multidimensional approach to engagement between the religious and the economic spheres. Quote, such economic-focused arguments miss that money, prosperity, and well-being are not necessarily the end goal in and of themselves. Like, I want money. And that could be greedy, see, but I, you know, I want that. And uh, I think I'd like to have a bigger house, a bigger car, more expensive, all of those sorts of things, uh, just because that's an end, the end goal. Uh, but it can be used to focus on what is really important, which is life. They focus on that word life. I think there's some work out of Africa. Both here and hereafter. In other words, a Christian, and they're looking at Pentecostals here, I think, largely, uh, have a bigger Christian vision for why they're doing what they're doing, even though they might be expending it on something. And it can be used to focus on what, sorry, uh, while their goal is to accumulate and distribute wealth, that would be giving in many cases, and sometimes purchasing, the motivations and objects are different. That is, goals for religious persons are shaped by the religious sphere to which they belong, and which guide their spending. Uh, it's uniquely as part of their, their prosperity gospel faith. Spending may also include commodities that symbolize divine blessing. They, 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 might, uh, they might buy a Mercedes in order to display that, you understand? So that might be a part of it. But underneath is this bigger picture. And I'll give one other illustration that I picked up way before I read this. Uh, there was a symposium at Regent University, Amos Young put it together here a number of years ago, and it's available electronically through U of T system. Uh, pick up the title of the book, there's a series of papers, and the one I remember was, uh, was uh, there, there were a number of researchers that went to this big, uh, this, this, this one researcher was reading his paper and his report, went to this big charismatic conference, all the big names were there, not charismatic and prosperity. Kenneth Copeland and uh, Creflo Dollar and the, the whole list. And they were giving their presentations. And, and this was around 2008, I think, the, right at, during the, 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 the big collapse, economic collapse. And, and uh, they would say things like, well, we don't have to worry about that because, you know, that's, that's not us. Everybody else is worried because of the banks. And he said, we've got our money into a different bank. You can hear all this stuff, right? <laughs> and so they would kind of go on with this. Uh, well, the researcher found a, a couple, and he got to kind of know them over coffee break. And he says, can I interview? So he went to them and said, what's going on with you? Why are you here? This was a young couple with a, a modest pop mom shop of some sort, I suppose. And, uh, and they had been really hurt hard by the, uh, by the uh, 
Right. Yeah. The, the, the recession. And so they um, they were hurting. And so he said, well, why are you here? They're telling you that that you're going to prosper. Are you prospering? Oh, no, we're not prospering. We're having a hard time. And we're not sure that our, our little business is going to make it. Well, then why are you here? And interesting, they said, because this is the one place where we are encouraged that somehow God is going to take care of us. Now, you see, that's quite a different message from what was coming from the, from the lectern. Isn't that right? And I never forgot that. And I realized that you have to look not on the big cultural move, but the subcultures and what's going on with them. That, for me, is very important. Now, the last piece uh, uh, on uh, under culture comes from uh, Wilkinson, but I think it comes uh, from somebody else. But he sums it up. Wilkinson's observation that the prosperity gospel movement signals a shift from a traditional political social sphere to an economic one may explain, at least partially, I'd say, the phenomenon of wealth display among parishioners, uh, practitioners rather. Since religious groups generally appropriate in ritual their demeanor and their dress, the cultural standard of the social sphere to which they belong, and we're now talking about an economic one rather than a political one. These practices become socially normalized in that group. What happens, so my question is, what happens when a religion shifts? Actually, he, I think here some, uh, as Peter uh, says, in, um, and I'm picking up on it. What happens when a religion shifts from one sphere to the other? In this case, from the political to the economic sphere. What are identifiable norms of dress and conduct and your attitude towards the way you display your money and the ritual appropriate to the religion that is embracing the economic sphere? Is it possible that such prosperity gospel display of wealth and possessions, display in possessions, demeanor, and ritual is at least one case of a larger societal, even maybe global shift towards an adaptation to a new economic sphere from the political. Are you getting what I'm saying? That we live, most of us, out of the political. So we are good loyal citizens and we're not really big on displaying our wealth. That's not that's not what we do. I heard it. I don't want to wear your tape. Sorry, can you go? Can you go back to that last point again as you're, you're reading this? You're saying that you're, this transition is being made from a political sphere to an economic one. And now, so it's, it's being reflected in how we dress, how we relate, possibly, display. right? Display one another, right? So. Yes, I'm going to have a bit more to say about that. But I think I am asking. 
I think this might be. This might be. Oh, it's coming up. Uh, yes, uh, we've been working. The theory is that we've been working out of the political sphere, and every denomination. I just use uh, illustrations. We, uh, we, 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 as an institution, we draw on uh, our political template from the, from the state in lots of different ways. Uh, clergy and you probably are licensed to marry in this culture, you know, but that's, the state actually has something to say about our official uh, conduct of conducting marriages, for instance. Uh, <clears throat> the, the example that kind of struck me was how we display money. It is so offensive to most people uh, the media, uh, the general public, and to mainline churches and to Pentecostal churches that are so polite evangelical now. And uh, you, you, do, you don't generally display your money uh, where, uh, where it on your sleeves. I know millionaires in the Anglican church that are clergy. You never know it. You never drive anything about a Volvo. And it's usually gray or black. Now, uh, I, I noticed. Sorry to interrupt, but wouldn't wouldn't be the initial behavior such as not driving a Volvo or not, you know, not showing up that you have money, also a cultural thing, or it's 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 maybe a maybe a a way to not be offensive to others that do not have as much as you have. Well, we do rationalize. Uh, and initially, I understood that the Don Dayton, the, the old holiness people, where they dressed down and dressed very, very modestly, was not because they couldn't afford something better, but they didn't want to become a barrier for poor people coming into the church. Me. That, that's, I think that that gets lost in the legalism that kind of came out of it. Uh, well, all I'm trying to say is that. In fact, this goes back to uh, H. Richard Niebuhr on denominationalism. He wrote way back in 1929, 1930. Not that long ago, he's referring to that. Uh, but he was writing in the 50s, uh, in the 40s, 50s, 60s. But he was looking at the, at the Protestantism in North America, in the United States in particular, and, uh, and how, how the, the Protestant church in the United States uh, secured the hegemony of Christian religion in the United States, unlike Canada, where the Catholic Church did that here. Uh, and, uh, and so they began more and more to reflect what we call civil religion, and it's still going on, in the United States. And so they acted appropriately according to the political sphere. And you'd have to unpack a lot of that. The, what I picked up years and years ago was that uh, when I would go into an African-American church, uh, I would see the bishop or the, the apostles these days, the bishop or the, the, the pastor driving a Cadillac, uh, a great big Lincoln. I, I've been in those places. And uh, I noticed that nobody, nobody gets upset about that, except white people. <laughs> and you stop and think about that. And, and they, I watched Bishop Smallwood Williams, a big church in, 
in Washington, D.C., and I just come from an interview, and I went and got in my car. He gets in his big Lincoln Mark something in 1973, 74, and he was driving out, and there's just a little, little boy sitting on the steps watching him walk, drive away, and you could see everything going on in that little boy's head. And he didn't see himself as, look, he's got a lot of money, but my mama doesn't have that kind of money, my daddy doesn't have No, 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 that's me. Because, exactly, but also there's more solidarity communally in that world than it is in ours. We are individualists. So I, I saw that there's a woman, I was working here uh, for a project for the seminary, Sheri Isabel, and she's Chinese. And, uh, and so I said, I want you to help me with this. What kind of car would you, would you expect your pastor to drive in a Chinese church? Why? Most associated with Chinese drivers? <laughs> <laughs> a luxury car from Honda, maybe? <laughs> well, she said the same as everybody else in the congregation. If he drives something lower than that, the people will think we're not paying him enough. And if he drives something a little higher than everybody else, he's. he's <laughs> we're paying him too much. <laughs> and he's, he's, he's showing off. Yeah. Where the African-American community, they actually want them to drive those big cars. And even in, in Africa, there's a lot of that. Uh, and here, uh, with the Chinese, it's the same as everybody else. That's a different culture. And then in the white world, we are now split with the prosperity and in the tradition. That, to me, is significant around understanding and interpreting what is going on. And then when it comes to the church, they, it's not just a car, but uh, they display their wealth in all sorts of ways. You know, in, in the dress, they don't, they don't dress down, they dress up. And, uh, and they will teach, Pat Francis out here, you know, we are kings and priests to God, and so we need to model the being kings and priests and, 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 and that sort of thing. Not, uh, so when she tells me we have to model that, that's what she's saying. Culturally, you're sh she doesn't realize probably that you're shifting to uh, a, an economic model. So for me, if this, in fact, this is within the prosperity movement and in the larger society now to some degree in the West, but if this, in fact, is a shift, then it could be just within that world of neoliberal e economics, you know. Uh, uh, and uh, if that's the case, then it will rise or fall on that movement. If, however, that movement becomes stronger throughout the world and in North America, you can expect a change in uh, practices like this. And I'm going to stop there before we get on the uh, section. This concludes part one of two of Dr. David Reed speaking on the topic, The Prosperity Gospel. Look for part two coming soon. 
We hope you've enjoyed this episode of MCS Pentacast. These podcasts are available through Podbean, iTunes, and other podcast providers. Master's College and Seminary offers biblical, theological, and practical courses from a Pentecostal perspective at undergrad and graduate levels. For graduate courses, visit mpseminary.com. For undergrad courses at our Peterborough campus or online, visit mcs.edu. Thank you.